0: Welcome back to Love Letters and Mixtapes. I am so glad you're here. This is a weekly podcast with new episodes available every Monday morning. The inspiration for this podcast was the desire to write, share, and talk about things that our younger selves needed to hear, whether that was 30 years ago, three years ago, or yesterday. After you listen to this episode, please make sure to subscribe on your favorite listening platform. Rate it and review it on Apple Podcasts, or share it with friends. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sponsoring this podcast with a small monthly donation by clicking the link in my Instagram bio at love letters and mixtapes. I want to thank the sponsor of this podcast, Snake River Roasting Companies an Organic Coffee Roaster located in the beautiful mountains of Jackson Hole, Wyoming. They roast award-winning coffees and their mission and commitment to supporting the rights of women farmers around the world are just incredible. Today, I started my morning with a cup of their Rome-Wyoming Organic Coffee Blend. And if you're ready to fall in love with your coffee, Snake River Roasting Company has a free shipping code for you to give their delicious coffee a taste. Head to their website, SnakeRiverRoastingCo.com, and use the code COFFEELOVE at checkout for free shipping on all domestic coffee orders. Well, I don't know what it is about this holiday season but it just brings up so much for everyone. There's almost this strange vortex from about mid-November until mid-January that is both tricky and revealing. It brings up memories, buried feelings, nostalgia, longing, loneliness, and resentments. It sort of reopens some old wounds, but then it can also kind of heal them very interesting and we are deep in it right now so there is no better time to surrender to that process. This week I had a few conversations with people about our childhood wounds and how these things show up in our lives today in adulthood and this conversation moved beyond this is what happened to me And moved into a space of, this is why I feel the way I do and react the way I do when I experience these certain things. And I love that because I always encourage self-reflection. Whenever we are having big emotions or we feel triggered by something or someone, it really helps to pause for a moment and ask ourselves in all of these situations, When was the last time I felt this way? When was the first time that I felt this way? Who was I with? What was I saying, doing, feeling, or experiencing? And that's not to encourage any spiritual bypassing or saying that our traumas have to have a purpose or that we can't feel a certain way about them or that those feelings can't change and evolve over time. I am a big believer in taking my hands off the wheel of other people's feelings, because I have no idea why or how or when you'll have different experiences with them or what higher purpose they serve. It's almost intoxicating to feel that we have a better understanding of why something happened in someone else's life because then we can make sense of it and compartmentalize it, make it orderly. But it's more about being able to tolerate the feelings, to sit with them, process them, and maybe get to the point where we can see what is on the other side of them, and allow that to change over time. Now, anytime I speak about a complex topic or pain point, whether that's on this podcast in a meeting, in a support group I'm running, or doing one-on-one work, I always feel that it's important to remind everyone listening that there is not a single person on this planet who is the final word on any topic that affects you. No matter if it's me or someone else, it's just one person's voice sharing about a common experience, and it is definitely bound to be flawed. And that's okay. That might be part of the process. It's not about me always getting it right or perfectly hitting the nail on the head every single time. It's about starting these conversations and letting other people know that it's safe to talk about these things. And our perfection is not required. Because in talking about some of the toughest topics or things we've experienced in our lives, we learn more about ourselves. We learn what makes sense to us, what we disagree with, what triggers us, and maybe some of the things that we've been avoiding in our own lives. I know that in my experience, sometimes that has only risen to the surface when someone shared something that I disagreed with, because in disagreeing with them, I was invited to look at my own story and really investigate my truth. And that's something I always encourage you to do. Of course, I want you to agree with everything I say, but it's not necessary. And I believe that that is very important today because I'm here speaking about how childhood loss, abandonment, and trauma show up in our lives in adulthood. It's okay to talk about them still showing up in our lives decades later, sometimes without our knowledge or permission or consciousness. And if we can only do that when we get it perfectly and we get it right, that cuts us off from the whole experience. Sometimes you have to get things completely wrong to drop into a deeper understanding of them. So with that, (laughs) let's dive into this topic. You know, earlier this week, I saw a post on Instagram where someone said, Along with self-love and self-care, self-control is very essential. And it was so funny because it aligned perfectly with the topic today and what I wanted to talk about. It's these three areas where adult survivors of childhood loss, abandonment, and trauma all tend to struggle. The self-love, the self-care, and the self-control. Part of experiencing loss, trauma, and abandonment at a young age is that we don't have the perspective, emotional tools, maturity, or life experiences to compare them with. And while all of those experiences are bound to have an effect on us whenever they happen, it's the ambiguity that we experience it with in childhood or adolescence that adds another layer to it that sometimes the adults in our lives are not really aware of or they don't remember it or they don't think about it. At the time, we are still getting to know and understand the world. Our brains aren't even fully formed. We can't always identify our feelings and solutions. We're not even that skilled at self-soothing in a lot of ways. And we are really at the mercy Of our caregivers and circumstances. Sometimes children even experience a bit of magical thinking, which sounds way more positive than it actually is in this circumstance. And by that I mean children can experience a loss or a trauma and feel that it is somehow their fault. And it's not rational, it doesn't make sense. They couldn't explain it to someone, but deep inside they feel like it's. The burden's on them, that they're guilty, it's their fault that this happened. And an example of that might be that one parent abandons the family, or maybe even a parent dying. And while as adults we know that this is not our fault, and even if we had those feelings rise up, we could continually talk ourselves into rationalization about the difference between our facts and our feelings. But children and adolescents sort of internalize the feelings and they believe that maybe they were somehow the cause and it doesn't have to make sense. We can know that we had nothing to do with this person's choice or something that happened to someone and still carry the guilt of thinking that we could have somehow figured out a way to save them or to prevent something from happening or to make them happy, or to make them healthy. And even if a child can't verbalize all those things, there may be a persistent feeling that something that the child did has caused this. And so there's the guilt and the shame, fear, feelings of low self-worth, or maybe an almost grandiose level of responsibility. And I spoke about that at length in an episode I did on imposter syndrome. And the one phrase that I shared that really resonated with so many of you was, I am so scared that I will be found out, but I don't even know what I did. And it really resonates when discussing this topic. Those feelings and fears begin to take root in our body without our knowledge or permission. So that even when they're not at the forefront of our consciousness, they may still be very attached to our core beliefs about ourselves and the world and how people perceive us and how the world works. Another example is, what if a parent or caregiver or sibling abuses us? What message does that send to us about how the world sees us or will treat us? What do we learn about taking up space or making ourselves small and invisible? What if we're neglected physically or emotionally? What message does that send to us about getting our needs met or how people value us or if there's even room for us in the world? What if we took on the role of caregiver at a very young age and began to connect our self-worth with what we could do for other people. A really good question to ask ourselves is, if this is an area where we struggle, can we love and accept ourselves, all of ourselves? Or do we think that we are only lovable and acceptable and worthy when we're perfect or when we're doing something for someone else? Can we only receive love when we earn it? And those answers are not always easy to deal with. Sometimes it's really difficult to sort of take that personal inventory and see how often we have abandoned ourselves or cast parts of ourselves off to the side because we felt that they made us undesirable. Or maybe we forced ourselves to be viewed and consumed through someone else's gaze Maybe because we didn't trust the world around us, and that feels a lot safer. Sometimes it's really hard to see ourselves clearly. But maybe we can step to the side and look at how we have treated other people in relationships. Our personal or romantic relationships offer so much information if we're willing to look at them. Are we attempting to recreate a dynamic that has harmed us in the past? Are we choosing partners that we can fix? Are we sabotaging relationships? Are we tough on other people the same way we are with ourselves? Are we unforgiving? Are we judgmental? Are we withholding? Do we only offer compassion and kindness when someone else has earned it? There's really no harm in checking in with ourselves and asking these questions to see how we feel about different things that have happened in our lives, different ways that we've responded to people. When we do that, sometimes we make connections that kind of blow our minds, especially when we step away from the facts and drop into the feelings. And that's something I always suggest when I'm leading groups and someone talks about a difficult relationship or interaction they've had. I'll encourage them to pause and reflect on what feelings it brings up for them and which other relationships in their lives bring up similar feelings. Now, the facts may be that there's no way your girlfriend and your father bring up the same feelings because they're different people. But if both relationships bring up feelings of fear, guilt, shame, then maybe relating and reflecting on the earlier relationship can offer some insight into what's going on in the current relationship. Another great question is, what am I doing to get my needs met? Sometimes it's a more important or revealing question than, what are my needs? Because shame or low self-esteem may not even allow us to believe that we have needs, but observing what behaviors we're engaging in to make sure that we're never abandoned, never hurt, never neglected, that might tell us things that can help us in the present moment. Earlier this week, I shared something on Instagram about a particular symptom of post-traumatic stress that I find myself struggling with pretty often. And that is a sense of a foreshortened future. And I shared about it because I know that a lot of people deal with these things privately. And maybe they don't even deal with them. They just kind of stuff them down inside and never talk about it with anyone. But that's why I wanted to share about it. And this sense of a foreshortened future is something that a lot of people, because of the last two years, are actually dealing with now, and they don't really have the language for it or the understanding about it. It just feels like there's something wrong with us, or we're doing something wrong. So people who experience this symptom after a traumatic incident or a loss feel that their lives will somehow be cut short without any real explanation as to why. As you can imagine, this is pretty difficult to talk about with anyone who hasn't experienced it because it doesn't make much sense. But for people who've experienced childhood loss, abandonment, or trauma, we know that this feeling is not based on a fact. And this feeling follows an experience like having your own life threatened, being abused or assaulted, or witnessing this happen to someone else, or losing a parent, caregiver, or sibling. And we may not be conscious of it at the time, but it can begin to creep into our lives and color our experience of the world and our perception of ourselves. People who experience this symptom feel as though they won't be able to reach milestones in their lives, such as having a successful career, reaching a certain age, achieving the things they want, forming a loving partnership, or even having children. This PTSD symptom, as you can imagine, can be very difficult to cope with. It distorts our perception. It numbs our responsiveness. It shapes reactivity. And it may lead to isolation, risk taking, hopelessness, and depression. The mantra that your mind generates on its own is what's the point? And I think that many survivors of trauma or abandonment or loss can relate to that type of confusion. And I'm happy to speak and share from the eye. I've shared about my own experience with trauma on this podcast before because it might be relatable. I survived extensive childhood trauma and then had a very violent near-death experience when I was 23. And you would think that someone who survived those things would automatically be overjoyed to just be alive. And I totally get that. Unfortunately, we just aren't built that way. What happened to me and what I have witnessed happen to many survivors of childhood trauma is that you begin wondering if it's a mistake. If it's a mistake that you're here, that you survived. If you are a mistake and you begin to feel very detached from outcomes and consequences in your own life. People who experience this tend to be completely uninterested in setting themselves long-term goals because they feel it would be futile and perhaps tempting the gods with hubris. They feel hopeless about the future because to have hope would entail the possibility of, again, being disappointed or harmed in some way which they no longer have the strength to cope with following the traumatic experience. In 2000, Mark Freeman coined the term narrative foreclosure, and that refers to a strong sense that one's life story has effectively ended and that there is no further purpose to it, no further meaning that can be derived from it, and no possibility that it will contain deep relationships with others or achievements of any kind. The individual affected in this way may also cease to feel that they care about anything or can be committed to any cause or project in the future. Feelings of extreme pessimism, extreme skepticism, that life is meaningless, that existence itself is a terrible thing, or that nothing can be known for sure may prevail. This sense of a foreshortened future is likely to be intertwined with a general loss of trust, which may manifest through beliefs such as, others cannot be trusted. The world is a dangerous place that I should interact with as little as possible. And I know that when I heard that term narrative foreclosure, that just made perfect sense to me. And I know that in sharing that, a lot of people hear that and they automatically want to say, but why? And again, I'm going to remind you that it doesn't make sense surviving something, having all the things that you thought meant everything to you taken away from you, and you being the thing that's left can sometimes make you feel extremely empty. It almost makes you feel like what he said, the story has ended, but you're still standing there. Wasn't a mistake made. And why bring this up? Why even make an episode about this particular topic that some people may not relate to? I actually think a lot of people do. But I bring it up because I'm pretty familiar with trauma, my own and that of the many, many people I've worked with. And what has gone down these last two years in the entire world, what we are still going through, has been a form of slow moving trauma. And it's been chipping away at hope purpose, and joy. And it's not easy to talk about these things or admit how they've impacted us when we've survived them, right? We're alive. And all we've heard for the last two years is how the next thing coming around the corner is about to kill us. Our lives have been transformed in ways we just never would have chosen. And so many of us are looking around a little stunned. And so then how do we answer the collective question of what happens next when we don't really believe that we'll be here to make anything happen? Or that even if we do, what will be the point? So I'm making the connection between some of our experiences with childhood loss, abandonment, and trauma and how these things come up with us and also how some people who didn't experience that are experiencing it now in adulthood because of the state of the world and you're not wrong for feeling that way you are not the only one who feels that way we are very discouraged from talking about it but that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with you and i do believe that when we talk about what we're going through with truth and authenticity we give silent permission to the person next to us who's probably suffering alone to bring that up and to share as well. And if we can curb our natural instinct to point a finger and say, you know, it's you, it's only you, no one else is going through this, you need to just, you know, toughen up, we can curb that and instead allow these feelings to come up and to share about them, they might reveal something else to us. Now self-care is a word that has been used and abused on social media over the last decade and it means so many different things to different people. For the sake of this podcast and this episode about childhood trauma and loss, we are talking about caring for our needs, caring for ourselves in an age-appropriate manner that supports our optimal functioning. And one example of poor self-care that some may resonate with is not making a doctor or a dentist appointment or having extreme anxiety around this, not prioritizing our health needs or feeling as if we have somehow failed if we need to go to the doctor or take care of ourselves in some way. I've mentioned the CDC's Adverse Childhood Experiences study in several episodes, And adverse childhood experiences are potentially traumatic events that occur in childhood from birth to 18 years of age. And there are 10 types of childhood trauma measured in the ACE study. What the CDC found is that adverse childhood experiences have a tremendous impact on future violence, victimization, and perpetration, and lifelong health and opportunity. ACEs are linked to chronic health problems, mental illness, and substance misuse in adulthood. ACEs can also negatively impact education and job opportunities. The study uncovered a surprising link between childhood trauma and the chronic diseases that people develop as adults, as well as social and emotional problems, including heart disease, lung cancer, diabetes, depression, violence, and suicide. And I always believe it's important to mention this study and similar studies to remind you that experiencing loss, trauma, or significant abandonment in childhood is not just part of life. I know that we are drowning in messages from the world telling us to just muscle through and toughen up and just get through difficult situations and to ignore our feelings. When the reality is that when we do this, we might make ourselves more convenient or accessible to the world but we actually cause more harm to ourselves. And so acknowledging the things that have happened to us or how our loss and abandonment affected us, it impacts our perception and decision-making. And these are all the steps to get to know ourselves better and to transform some of our pain into power or at the very least transform it into peace. A simple tool that I use for self-care is an acronym HALT. And I've mentioned it on the podcast before because it's actually really helpful. And we can use this in moments of distress or reactivity to identify what our needs are. Are we hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? And obviously it goes deeper than that. It's a way to assess if our needs are physical, emotional, mental, or spiritual, and what steps we can take to address them instead of just exacerbating them. A really helpful question to ask when we're talking about self-care is, are we numbing ourselves, harming ourselves, or caring for ourselves? Because sometimes we just don't know the difference. The lines are a little blurry. We can think that we're taking great care of ourselves because we have a relationship, or we're making great money, Or we look really good, but if we go just underneath the surface, we realize that the outsides don't match the insides. And is there something we can do about it? Something we haven't tried? And that's where the self-care comes in. And I know that it's not the first thing that people who have survived childhood trauma, loss, and abandonment go for. It's certainly not the first thing that I go for. I would much rather just blame, shame, and isolate myself in those moments when I feel triggered. That's why I'm mentioning it today. Because if you have had those experiences as an adult, you have the opportunity to make another choice and to begin implementing these things in little ways that can shift your life. So even just using that acronym, the next time you're triggered and saying, as corny as it sounds, as much as I don't want to use it, am I hungry? Angry, lonely, or tired, and allowing yourself to answer that and see what it brings you. And so that brings us to the last topic, and that is self control. And this one might be a little more challenging to talk about. And maybe that's partly because self control is often misinterpreted or weaponized or not really modeled for us in healthy ways. But the relationship between childhood trauma, loss, and abandonment and self-control is an important one, although it can be a very difficult one. I think we tend to really associate self-control with our behavior. It's a great place to start, of course, you know, controlling our actions, having healthy boundaries, respecting other people's spaces. These things are all pretty essential in adulthood. But What I want to talk about today is the self-control that extends far beyond that and touches how we communicate, process, and engage energetically with the world around us. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned the magical thinking that sometimes children experience in those moments of loss and trauma thinking, you know, I could have done something. I had control over this. If I could have just been better, quieter, happier, sweeter, demanded less things, needed less things, this person would have stayed or lived. Okay, so those are some pretty out of control thoughts and we can't expect children to have complete control over them, but as adults, a good place to begin is do I have as much control over my thoughts? as I do over my behavior. If I would not allow myself to have a full-blown tantrum with another person, why am I allowing my thoughts to do that? Am I separating my thoughts from my behavior, and is that serving me? Am I allowing my thoughts to spin out of control all the time, and am I telling myself, that doesn't affect anyone else, it's just me? It does affect you. It does affect other people. And so what can we do to set up sort of barriers or safety measures when we know that our thoughts are wandering into dangerous territory? I think another part of that is how we communicate. That self-control and communication are in very close relationship with one another. And when we say communication, we just think, well, maybe self-control means shutting up when I want to say something mean, but self-control in our communication also means developing the muscles to listen and to interpret and to apply healthy perspective to the information we are being given. So if every time I approach a situation and I immediately think the absolute worst thing, or I'm weaponizing something against someone, or I'm filtering it through this perspective of self-sabotage, I'm not exerting much control in my communication. Again, it's not just what I say, it's what I interpret. And so introducing that level of control, it's a muscle that's really important to build. No one ever talks about it, but <laughs> distorted perception can be the death of us. It can destroy our relationships. It can destroy our professional lives. It can destroy our families. So, introducing those steps can really help. How do I do that? One, journaling might be really helpful. I know that a lot of people really don't like putting pen to paper, it's excruciating. But imagine if Your distorted thoughts didn't just exist in your head because they sound really good in our heads. What if every time we had one of those distorted thoughts, we had to put it on paper and read it and look at it and be like, I I don't know that that makes much sense. It sounded a lot better in my head. But as I'm seeing it on paper, I realize how ridiculous that is. That is not what that person is doing. That's not how they're feeling. That's not how they're perceiving me. So. Journaling is a really good step. Meditation is really helpful. And that is getting out of the racing thoughts and intensifying our focus on one thought. So that mantra that I offered earlier, I use that mantra a lot in meditation. The world is a beautiful place and I belong here. And the reason I focus on it and go over and over and over is to build those muscles of self-control in my mind because my mind comes up with a great story about how everyone's out to get me, how no one loves me, no one cares about me, nothing good is ever going to happen. And I share that because I know I'm not the only one, (laughs) because I talk to a lot of you people offline, and I know that a lot of you have the same thoughts. And that's why we introduce those things in meditation that consistent mantra, we're creating a new pathway in our mind. If our mind never has any idea that it has an option or another street to walk down, it's going to keep going in that same line it's always been going in. So it really is up to us to introduce that level of self-control. And probably the last thing I would say about self-control is a combination of the self-care and the self-love. And maybe that's taking a step to support yourself in this area. If you are someone who's experienced childhood loss, trauma, and abandonment, there's a sense of deprivation that you might resonate with, that you don't deserve healing, you don't deserve love, you don't deserve to feel better. And that can be something that Maybe we're not always aware of, but sort of hanging around. And so sometimes that cuts us off. It cuts us off from connection, from sharing with other people, from being honest about how we feel, what we think, what we want. And we owe it to ourselves to find spaces where we can start tapping into those things, whether it's just thinking about them, hearing about them, or verbalizing them. I've spoken in Great detail on this podcast about how beneficial twelve-step uh, programs have been for me in my life. The adult children of alcoholics groups have been essential in doing this work in a really healthy, measured, and powerful way. And it wasn't just like a one-time aha moment where someone sort of got in my face like Dr. Phil and yelled at me and told me everything that was wrong with me, and I just fixed it. No. It's been consistent trial and error, coming back to the same things in my life over and over again with new tools that I have developed over time. Something else that came up earlier this week, somebody asked me about sort of those aha moments, those like lightning bolt um, experiences, those miracle experiences to cure ourselves. And what I shared was as appealing as those things are. I wouldn't want them because what that does is that strips me of all of my defense mechanisms, all of my character defects and all of my tools all at once and gives me this one thing to depend on. And if that one thing is removed, I'm devastated. And the reason why this slow and steady pace of developing these tools through regular work, whether that's meditation, journaling, therapy, 12-step groups, whatever it is, it takes time and it builds and it creates a really strong foundation that nothing outside of you can take away from you. And that's why I talk about these things. That's why I encourage these things is because I want everyone to have those things. There's this one phrase that I use very often on this podcast, and that is life on life's terms. And I use that because the whole world sort of tells us that we are in complete control over everything that happens to us, our thoughts, our feelings, our experiences, our health, our bodies, our relationships, our profession, that if only we were just the masters of our destinies and really took control of things, we would get exactly what we want and all would be well. I don't agree with it. I actually think that life does unfold on life's terms. So it's not about the rigidity of saying, I am only showing up for getting exactly what I want. And I feel that maybe that's really important to share with people who have survived childhood trauma, loss and abandonment, or maybe even trauma in their adulthood. Because it can almost feel like we did something wrong. I've heard that from people when I shared my story very humbly and vulnerably and and shared and said, this is something that happened to me. And their first response is, you did all of these things wrong. You must have brought it on yourself. God, that is so harmful and dangerous. So I'm talking about these things because it's not about being as rigid and forceful as possible in our lives, but maybe it's about really building up that emotional toolbox that we have and taking good care of ourselves and building a strong foundation of coping skills, of emotional resilience and emotional sobriety so that no matter what happens, the good or the bad, we can show up for it. We can experience it. We can survive it. We can move through it. And you never know, sometimes life on life's terms is the Wi-Fi being spotty, my neighbors being as loud as humanly possible, and my throat being raspy because I'm allergic to absolutely everything in the Pacific Northwest. (laughs) But I did my best, and I hope that you felt seen and heard as I explored this topic. It's not the last time I'm going to talk about it. It's not talking about everything having to do with childhood trauma, loss, and abandonment, but we're tapping into it, and I hope that it resonated with you. And until next week, make sure to hit the follow button on your favorite podcast listening platform. You can join me on Instagram at love letters and mixtapes. And if you enjoy this episode, please consider making a small monthly donation to support this podcast by clicking the link in my Instagram bio.